Good evening, and uh, I'll say this again. Welcome to RUF. As I mentioned before, my name is Nick Brancher. Come on. There it is. There it is. That one? Nope. This one? There it is. Perfect. Uh, my name is Nick Bratcher. Uh, I'm the campus minister here for RUF. I'm glad you joined us this evening. I know you could have done a lot of things with your Tuesday night, and you decided to come here. Tonight, we're continuing on in our series, Songs That Shape Us, uh, which are about the Psalms in Psalm 13. While that's being pulled up, boom, there it is. Uh, I'll remind you that we've called this series Songs That Shape Us because that is exactly what the Psalms are. They are songs that are meant to be sung by God's people, and as we sing them, uh, God effectively gives his people the words that he wants uh, them to use to describe him, to describe themselves, uh, to describe the world around them. The hope is that as these words are sung, uh, they become deeper and truer to those that sing them. We heard about that in Psalm 1, uh, you know, that uh, people coming to trust the words that they sing, these, these words of the Bible. We heard about in Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago uh, that, yeah, that ultimately the Bible needs to be our authority and our trust. And then last week we took up Psalm 8, which talks about who God is and who man is in relation to him. But one of the most remarkable parts about the Psalms is actually how they enable us to understand and shape our emotions. Uh, we haven't done a lot of those yet, but here we're about to get into them. Uh, they give us voice to, uh, they actually give voice to how we feel in our everyday lives, the emotions that we experience day in and day out living here on earth, the heartbreaks, successes, fears, uh, desires that we have, these things are all reflected in the words of the Psalms. They're songs uh, actually really uh, uh, for specific occasions. Words that God has given us to sing when we feel certain ways. Uh, and even when we don't feel certain ways, it may be even just to identify with our neighbor who does feel that way. They're designed to help us feel emotions and experience those occasions in a way that honors God and glorifies him. Tonight's psalm, Psalm 13, is, ready for it, a song for despair. Uh, that is really what this psalm is about. We don't use that word a lot, despair, uh, but it's actually something we all experience in this life. Uh, we experience this emotion when uh, we get a bad grade, uh, we, when we miss an important deadline, or when our hours get cut at work and we wonder if we're going to be able to pay rent or if we have to choose maybe not eating that week. Uh, we experience this emotion when the doors of our future suddenly shut, uh, whether we're passed over for an internship or we can't seem to find a major that really truly interests us or we encounter some sort of feat, uh, some sort of setback that makes our career not possible anymore, a dead end maybe. You experience this emotion uh, maybe when you uh, finally work up the nerve to ask that cute girl out in your math class or that cute guy out in your math class. You're trying to get them to nurse you, and you've been nervous all this time, and you ask them out, and they're like, uh, no thanks. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, maybe they don't even say thanks. They just say no. Uh, and you're wondering, is there something wrong with me? Uh, is, is, you know, is there something impossible to love about me? Despair is that feeling. It's that feeling that there are circumstances that are outside of your control and they are trending negatively. They are getting worse. Uh, the world might crash down around you 
and you are pretty powerless to stop it. That's despair. Whether you're experiencing this right now, and I know uh, many of you are, or uh, you're going to experience it in the future or, the, or you've experienced it in the past, it's important to know uh, what it is you're supposed to do when despair comes your way. What does it look like to honor God in the middle of these moments of life that all happen to us? What does it mean to be a human fully alive in the midst of experiencing turmoil? What are you going to do in your moment of despair? That's our question tonight. That's our big question. If you're going to take notes or whatever, that's the the question to hang your hat on this evening. Uh, How does God want us to despair? How does God want us to despair? Uh, Well, let's read Psalm 13 and find out. Uh, This is starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so let's dig into this passage this evening as we answer the question, how are we to despair? Let's start in verse 1. Look with me there in verse 1. It's also printed on the back of your bulletin if you got one of those. Uh, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? The psalmist begins by twice linking his feeling of despair to God's <clears throat> actions, or lack thereof, his lack of action. He first asks if God will forget him forever. Now, this accusation of forgetfulness is not like when we forget things, right? If you've ever you know, forgotten to lock the door on your way out of the house, this is not like that kind of forgetting. It's not Uh, about facts and figures or actions, tasks to be remembered. Instead, when the Bible talks about God's memory, it's talking about his providential care for people. For example, in Genesis 8, God is said to remember Noah and his family, and as he does, he saves them from the flood. Uh, In 1 Samuel 1, after worshiping him, God remembers Hannah, he remembers her, and he opens her womb to actually have a son uh, named Samuel. For God to forget the psalmist, then, is for him to withdraw his providential care over him. Uh, The psalmist uh, simply reiterates the same point right after in the same breath with different language in the latter part of verse 1. There God is anthropomorphized. Uh, that's like a fancy word for like being made into like having human uh, attributes, um, as turning his face away from him. And this is an oft-used phrase. It's taken up in Psalm 30, 44, 88, and it's used always to describe alienation and curse from God. Whatever is troubling the psalmist, he credits his situation basically entirely to uh, God's care, his lack of care, rather. So what comes next in verse 2 really shouldn't surprise us. The psalm takes counsel in his soul. Look with me there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Some versions will also translate this as the psalmist like wrestling with his thoughts, but either way is translated. 
because he does not uh, experience God's counsel and protection, this is what the psalmist does. He turns inward. When he no longer sees God at work on his behalf, he, his mind kicks into overdrive and his heart is in turmoil. Uh, friends, we, we have a word for what this is in our society, and it's called anxiety, right? Uh, stuck in a hopeless situation without a remedy, all the possible scenarios, all the ways, all the reflections he can make, uh, you know, all the, the ways this could go poorly for him uh, start coming into his mind and they're, they're flowing like a, a riverfront, right? They're taking up his full counsel. Uh, maybe this is the enemy he refers to in the latter part of verse 2. But even if it's someone or something else, uh, the point is clear. Without God, anxiety, thoughts, uh, wrestling creeps in. Worry begins to take over. If God's not in control, then the temptation will always be for you to be in the driver's seat, right? If God's not going to be in control, if God isn't uh, present in your life, if he's not active and working, then your temptation is going to be to do it yourself, to make your own good fortune. And, and there's an alluring promise there, isn't there, to casting off God's control. Nobody's going to control me. He's not going to define how my life is going to go. I can make this happen. But the truth is, being in control of your own life is an incredibly anxiety-inducing task. Uh, during the Protestant Reformation, one of Martin Luther's best friends was a man by name of uh, Philip Melanchthon. He wrote some books and things in his own right, but Philip was given to worry and anxiety, so much so that sometimes he would have a hard time moving. Like He would have a hard time getting out of bed or doing anything, uh, particularly because you know, the weight of Christianity felt like it was on his shoulders and on the reformer's shoulders. And when this would happen, uh, and he would get kind of catatonic, Luther would come over to him and place his hand on his shoulder, and he would say the same phrase every time, Philip, you need to let Philip cease to rule the world. And every time he would just walk over just that simple phrase, Philip, you need to let Philip cease to rule the world. Turning inward to try and figure out a way out of our circumstances means that you've got to figure out how to get out of your circumstances, right? It puts all the pressure on you to analyze and reanalyze your failures and vow to never let them happen again, right? To never be vulnerable. Uh, you've got to, it's an attempt to make the world uh, bow to you in a way that you can't make it happen. Uh, this means that you end up doing things like this. You end up constantly scheming about how to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Uh, and um, it means that, like, when you do that, when you're constantly, like, obsessed over these kinds of things, uh, you might actually be in rebellion against God just, just by trying to keep that in your own wheelhouse. Or uh, I'll say this to be an equal opportunity offender. Uh, if you are constantly avoiding <laughs> becoming a boyfriend or girlfriend uh, to avoid the anxiety, to avoid the pain that might come from that, that is also you taking matters into your own hands, right? Uh, could be, could go either way. Um, this also looks like this. It might be beating yourself up for a bad grade you got uh, and worrying, just constantly worrying about the next test. It's all you can think about. Uh, it's, that's a way of crowning yourself your own king over your life and taking everything in your hands and just castigating yourself because of it, uh, punishing yourself as king over yourself as a subject. Uh, stressing about how you're uh, going to get enough hours right, at your job, 
um, is not placing trust in the person who absolutely can decide whether or not you can make ends meet. Um, All of these things actually end up crushing you and crushing the people around you. And uh, these are all rebellious ways of dealing with despair, uh, not giving God the control he deserves. Um, And they're they're actually things that we should abandon. Uh, They're attempts that we should abandon. And interestingly, the psalmist has abandoned it himself. Look again at verse 2. This counsel of the soul uh, is not actually the way forward, even according to the psalmist. He's actually not going to engage in this. He he does not prescribe this anxious scheming, but rather uh, he's describing it, not prescribing it. And he's asking God instead to intervene, right? The question is, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, are you going to leave me in this place where I'm prone, where I feel uh, this need to... uh, scheme and have counsel only in myself and my own soul. He does not want to rule the world, but he's tempted to seize the control. And this prayer is evidence that the psalmist is seeking an alternative, some other way of moving forward. That alternative comes in the next breath uh, in verse 2. It's sorrow. Instead of anxiety, the, the emotion that he needs to embrace in the midst of his despair is sorrow. And that's actually our first answer to our big question this evening, right? How are, uh, how are we to despair or to despair with sorrow? You'll notice that this is not sadness over sin that has been committed. There's no mention that he's done anything wrong. Uh, there's no repentance that's necessary. God's not punishing him. Not all bad things happen to people because they've sinned or they've done something wrong. Uh, like the man in John 9, there's a blind man in John 9, and a bunch of people come up to Jesus and are like, what did this man do? And Jesus says, nothing. Uh, we live in a fallen, broken world, and that is why this man is blind. Uh, no, uh, this is a sorrow over the circumstances that themselves. And here's the, here's the good news. Um, God is okay with you being sad. Let me say that again, because it's a very simple point, and I understand that it could be overlooked, but like, God is okay with you being sad. In fact, he's telling you, in giving you words to express you being sad. Uh, I'm, uh, some Christians, uh, um, I've heard it taught before that like, you know, if Jesus died for you on the cross, there's no way for you to ever not be happy, right? That like, if Jesus really died for you on the cross, then you should be like happy all the time that like your eternal spot is secure. You're going to heaven. Like nothing can take, like nothing can touch you. Uh, not even cancer, not death, nothing. And the reality is this Psalm is screaming the exact opposite. There's plenty of reasons actually to be very, very sad. Uh, And so um, I think God here is giving us the language uh, that he wants us to pray to him, that we are sometimes sad, and we're supposed to tell him that. But this psalm, uh, but look at the end of verse 2. I've I've ignored it up until now, uh, but there the the psalmist actually claims that there's also an enemy that's being exalted over him. Uh, Who or what that enemy is is not super important, in fact, the psalmist is seemingly intentionally vague. Uh, there might have been an occasion. Uh, it's possibly David who wrote this psalm. That's what the superscription says. But even if that's not right, there may have been an occasion where David wrote this, right? But we don't really know what that occasion is. And it's intentionally vague because we're supposed to be the ones singing it, right? It's, it's meant for us to sing. And so uh, while the enemy is not important, it does raise a question which is actually the cause of the psalmist's despair, right? What's the, what's the cause of his distress? Is it 
this enemy uh, and the circumstances that he's facing, or is it God's lack of care? Right? Because earlier I was saying that uh, God's lack of care has caused him to be tempted, and like that's the real crux of the issue. But here he says that there's an enemy uh, that is exalting over him. Well, here's what the text is going to claim, that both of those things are true. That God uh, both is responsible for a lack of care and is also, uh, there's also an enemy that is uh, responsible for um, this distress, uh, circumstances like I've named before. In the worldview of the Bible, uh, this can be a little tricky. I understand, like, wait, how can... God and this man also be uh, the person who's causing this thing. Well, I'll say it like this. Um, the psalmist is hinting at a concept called God's sovereignty. Uh, this is something in uh, Reformed theology that we lean on pretty heavily. But in the worldview of the Bible, God is ultimately in control of everything. That's the, the, something that the psalmist is assuming here. The fact that he prays to God, uh, the fact that he can tell him these things is evidence that God uh, is aware and is in control and could help him. Uh, it is biblically accurate to say that uh, this, that God is the first cause of all things, uh, including this psalmist's suffering, your suffering, anyone's uh, despair. Nothing happens outside God's plan. That's just the reality. He is not surprised by hard things that come your way, uh, and he is not deterred by anything uh, to accomplish his purposes. But on the other hand, the Bible also affirms that we have real agency in this life. That while God has purposes and that nothing will thwart his will, every decision that you and I make also matters. That, that even though God has a complete and total plan that can't be shaken, and it includes every choice you're ever going to make, also every choice you make is a free choice that you make. That is, that is the, the contradiction of the paradox, not a contradiction, it's a paradox, uh, of the Bible. Um, we see things from our fallen human perspective, right? We see things from one horizontal plane. And so it's very difficult for us to make sense of these two things that seem to, that seem to contradict each other. But put simply, this means uh, that the Bible, uh, and as the psalmist does, can simultaneously claim that God is responsible for everything in his plan and yet not the author of evil. Right? He's responsible for everything in his plan. Nothing goes awry. Nothing, nothing can happen outside of his will. And yet at the same time, uh, he is not the instigator of the evil things that happen to people. God can save the psalmist from his circumstances, but he's not the author of them. Uh, he's not the second cause, which is the enemy. Um, uh, I, we have my number on this board. If you want to ask me more questions about that, you're like uh, a little confused, you can. I encourage you guys to do that. Um, but I'm going to keep moving on. Uh, so uh, God so well, here's something that we know about God's sovereignty uh, is that it's good, right? So uh, it might be, you might be tempted to get stuck on the idea, wait, so God, God has orchestrated these horrid things in this guy's life, and you're now claiming that God has also, like in some way, like bringing hard things into my life, uh, that is not, I'm not cool with that. I don't want that. I don't want to have anything to do with this God. I'll say this, that God's sovereignty is actually the source of any sort of hope and good in this world. It's the only, it's the only source of strength that you can find uh, outside yourself. When we know this, uh, because God's sovereignty is the fundamental element in prayer. 
right? It's the, it's the fundamental fuel for prayer. Why bother praying if God is not actually, truly, and 100% totally sovereign? If he's like, well, I can, I can help you out a little, but not really, then why are you even going to bother talking to him? Uh, and the reality is most of us, even, like, even people who like, don't believe there is a God, like when push comes to shove, we all end up kind of saying prayers because we think maybe there's somebody up there who really is in control. And that's our hope coming through, spilling over. The confidence uh, that God is ultimately in control of all things, even evil things that fall out according to second causes, uh, means that he is powerful enough to rescue his people from any situation, anything. And so the psalmist rightly prays. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. The psalmist does not wallow in the circumstances he unpacks in verses 1 through 2. Instead, he is moved by God's sovereign control into praying directly to him. Now, the ESV translation that I've printed for you obscures this a little bit in verse 3, but the word consider, that word consider that's there, it's actually the Hebrew word for look, like for, for with your eyes gazing upon something. It literally says, look and answer me. The psalmist has accurately assessed his spiritual condition, right? Whereas in verse 1, he feels God's face turn away from him. He now asks God to turn his gaze back upon him, to care for him once again, uh, to remember him. This is almost, I mean, if you think about it, it's the most about-face way of uh, facing the situation. In the midst of turmoil that would tempt him to turn away from God as God turns away from him, he instead turns to God and asks God to look at him. Uh, It even highlights um, a sense of defiance. In the face of this turmoil, this is Uh, This is what true strength looks like. It's not actually running away or solving your own problems. True strength actually looks like looking back at God and saying, help. Now that he's come to terms with his lack of self-control and his sadness and God's sole ability to save him in distress, he naturally pivots to God to help him. And it's, uh, oh, and the fancy theological word for this is called supplication, and it starts with an S, so it works. Uh, So I'm going to borrow it. And it's our second answer to our question, how do we feel despair with supplication? So I said earlier, uh, how, do, how are we to despair? I said with sorrow, and now I'm saying with supplication, with supplication. Just a fancy word of asking God for help. Supplication, two Ps. Uh, ultimately, the psalmist does this because God is powerful in a way that he's not. It is God who is able to light up his eyes and rescue him from death and defeat his enemies. Um, I was a huge, huge, like, WWE, I think it was called WCW at the time, wrestling fan when I was a kid. I'm from Kentucky, so that's my excuse. Uh, I don't know what yours is. Um, but I loved, I freaking loved professional wrestling when I was a kid. And uh, one of the narratives that they had going when I was really little was uh, that there was this group of, like, bad guy wrestlers called the NWO, and it stood for New World Order, and they were, like, eight guys, and they were just, like, terrible, and they were mean to everybody all the time. Um, they would, like, be mean to, like, waiters and waitresses, like, for random reasons. Uh, one time, this was actually happening, uh, one of the guys in the New World Order was ordering something from, like, a concession stand. He was just being really, really rude to the woman who was taking his order, and uh, he was, like, he was even, like, cussing at her and stuff, and, uh, and then out of nowhere, he, like, suddenly, like, sh- like shapes up. And he's like, uh, actually, you know what? Here's like 20 bucks, and I uh, don't want anything. I just want you to have that. Uh, that's just a tip. And he so he's like backing away, and you have no idea why he's done this. And he starts backing out of the frame, and then out of nowhere, into the frame steps 
my favorite wrestler, Sting, who has like a black and white face paint. He's like got this huge black bat that he like beats people with. And I was like, yeah, Sting! You know, I'm like so excited to see Sting on, on the camera. And it suddenly dawns on me like they're not afraid of this woman, right? He didn't suddenly, this NWO guy didn't suddenly like get afraid of the, of the cashier lady, right? No, what's actually happened is that uh, he's come face-to-face with somebody who is powerful and who is much stronger than him. What I'm telling you is, as funny as that story may be, you need to get yourself a sting, right? You need to get yourself a man with a big black bat who can handle your problems. Uh, and and the, the reality is that that's who God is, right? God is your sting. He is... Uh, he's good, and he triumphs over evil, and he is bigger than the problems that you face. Uh, and the idea is uh, you've got to trust him, right? Uh, that you don't seize control, that you recognize that you are just the cashier lady in the face of some guy who's like six foot four and 280, right? Uh, and you look to him uh, to light up your eyes and to ensure that you are not defeated. Uh, But if we're honest with ourselves, here's the problem. If we're honest with ourselves, that's a really big ask, right? That's a a tough ask uh, from us uh, to trust God in this way. So how are we going to do it? What's our motivation to love God in this way, to trust him? Well, look with me at verses 5 and 6. Hopefully, maybe you'll think of him as your sting. Uh, The psalmist here explains his motivation for this prayer. He trusts in God's steadfast love. This steadfast love is the same love that was promised to Israel uh, after God rescued them from slavery. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God says this about himself. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's that same word, that steadfast love. If God delivered his people on that day, the psalmist kind of surmises, if God can rescue a whole people out of Egypt, bring them across a, you know, a river on dry land, part the Red Sea, uh, do all these miracles, feed them every day with bread that rains from the sky. If he can do all of this stuff, then maybe he can be relied on in his present circumstances. As he says in verse 6, God has already dealt. This is, you notice he, he uh, switches to past tense when he gets to the end of the psalm. God has already dealt bountifully with him. He's so sure of God's steadfastness, in fact, that he is able to sing. He's able to sing through his despair. And that's our third and final answer to our question tonight. How are we to despair? With sorrow, with song, or sorry, with sorrow, with supplication, and with song. With sorrow, with supplication, with song. Uh, What do I mean by uh, song? What what does it have to do with singing? Why would singing help? I'll say like this, uh, Joni Erickson Tata, if you know who she is, um, she's about 52 years ago this week. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata was in her early 20s, if I'm not mistaken, maybe her late teens. But she um, was uh, diving off of a, like a dock and ended up hitting a rock with her head and broke her spine. And she ended up uh, being a quadriplegic. She's been that way for the rest of her life. And... Uh, uh, like a few months after her crash, um, she's sitting in a wheelchair. Um, this is from one of her autobiographies. She's sitting in a wheelchair, and uh, her husband comes up to her and is like, you know, Joni, she's, so she's old enough to get married, I guess, uh, comes up to her and asks, like, Joni, uh, what are you doing? 
She says, I'm watching the horses. Uh, Joni had ridden uh, horses her whole life before becoming a quadriplegic. And her husband's like, Joni, you, you, you can't torture yourself like this. Come back inside. Like, you don't need to be, like, watching these horses. Like, why, why are you doing this to yourself? And she says this, uh, I'm not torturing myself. Uh, I just don't want to forget how to ride. Um, How do we know that God listens uh, to prayers? How do we know that he is our sting? Um, It's this, that uh, Jesus became poor, right? Uh, The psalmist here can say that God has dealt bountifully with him because Jesus uh, became poor. Jesus denied the bounty that was promised to him, uh, even though he was the righteous one who really does trust in the Lord and doesn't put everything under his own strength, uh, his steadfast love. He took on himself the wrath of God on the cross, uh, and he took upon that wrath that was owed to God's enemies, the real enemies that are mentioned here, a.k.a. us, when he died on the cross. And such, and like such were some of us, and we would be, apart from Christ, we would be, we couldn't pray this prayer. The reality is the only way that you can pray this prayer and actually mean it, uh, to say that you aren't the enemies, that you are on God's side, that you are the righteous, that you want God's face to look upon you, is if you are in Christ, is if you have Christ's righteousness given to you, uh, that he died uh, the death that you should have died, and gives you his righteousness in his place. Because uh, Christ did that, We don't have to despair without song. We don't have to sorrow without song. Uh, Even in the midst of her pain and anguish, uh, Joni Erickson Tata knows the end of the story. She knows that one day God is going to come back if she places her faith in him and that he's going to make all things new, even her body, and that she will ride horses again one day. That's the promise to us. Uh, That's the promise to us that we can look toward, that we can look to, that we can sing despite our circumstances no matter where we are. And it's what God wants you to sing. Uh, You can live because Jesus died. You can sing uh, because Jesus, uh, this rhymes, sorry. You can sing because Jesus cried. (laughs) I didn't know that was going to rhyme. You're rich because Jesus was made poor. If Jesus is is your Lord, you can sing in the midst of sorrows because he wept in the midst of his. Let's pray.